WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is currently running a campaign for the completed saucer country on Zoop and once wrote a story in which in which Pete Wisdom stopped a vampire invasion from the moon. Paul Cornell. Welcome, Paul. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me along. So uh, first things first, how was your thought bubble this weekend? Oh, it was gorgeous. It's always gorgeous. I, I have this thought going through my head at Thought Bubble, which is um, it, it's almost a line from Patrick Troughton's Doctor Who. Nobody, no one else lives lives like ours. And to be <laughs> to be a comicer at Thought Bubble is very heaven. Uh, the social life, the um, interest from the general public, um, you, you know, the door prices are low enough, so you, you basically get people just coming along who want to see what this stuff is. And, and the feeling we're all in the same boat. It's just an amazing, amazing event. Glad to hear that. That's definitely one of those bucket list shows for me, making that flight over to uh, England. But uh, Amen. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, well, we'll ask you the question that we ask all our first time guests. What are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Well, um, there were always comics in my house, things like Pippin and Play Hour, um, British uh, children's weeklies, uh, Pippin and Play Hour, and then uh, graduating to things like Sparky, which was a very anarchic and wonderful humour comic. But my real origin story, I think, is uh, the moment my dad brought home Avengers Weekly, which reprinted issue four of the US Avengers, um, with um, some scary Steve Ditko, Doctor Strange in the back. Mm. And um, I thought it was the most adult comic I had ever read in my life. And it was entirely apt for me at the uh, tender young age of whatever it was, probably about six or seven. And I was hooked and I had to have every issue. And from that point, the Marvel Universe kind of opened up to me. I, I saw an issue of the American Avengers imported on a newsstand. And it was like, whoa, that's issue a hundred and something. And <laughs> who's that? Who are all these new Avengers people? The how can this be? And it, it's that wonderful moment when um, the size of a universe opens up for you. And uh, anyway, so that was those. That's my comics origin story, basically. It's fantastic. Uh, so yeah, you're here to promote your Zoop campaign for the completed Saucer Country, which is your uh, political intrigue and uh, aliens series with artist Ryan Kelly. Uh, this, this series has quite has had quite a journey. You know, for those who may not remember, Saucer Country initially ran 14 issues at Vertigo in uh, 2012 and 13, uh, then moved to IDW as Saucer State for six more issues. Uh, it starred Arcadia Alvarado, the governor of New Mexico, who's running for president when she uh, suddenly remembers being kidnapped by aliens, although she's missing a lot of the details of the encounter. Uh, but the story was ultimately uh, never finished. So, you know, the first thing that I was curious about, you know, what was the initial plan publishing wise and, and what changed? Um, well, basically, uh, IDW uh, dropped us six issues in mm. and um, on a cliffhanger. Uh, we'd intended it to be a mid season break. Um, we figured we had five, six issues left. And um Obviously, sales weren't good. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't blame them. You know, you can, you, you're only as good as your sales. Um, and um, so we had the ending still floating there. Um, and I 
just a year or so ago figured, well, you know, I was going to start lots of new stuff in those last six issues. If I just concentrated on ending the current plot lines, how long would it take? And I thought, hey, we could do this. We could do this. If we, we, if we just maybe just one and a bit more issues, we could finish everything off, answer every question and tie it up in a neat little bow. And then I encountered Zoop and saw what success they were having. And, well, the rest is history, basically. We thought, let's put everything, um, all the material, in a big softcover collection with a new ending by myself and Ryan Kelly, uh, with colour art by Pippa Boland and letters by Simon Boland. And, you know, we'll be able to sell people the whole story. And also, for those loyal readers who've got every issue already, we're not going to make you buy that. We're also going to release the um, just the ending separately, so you can just get that. And, um, yeah, and, and so that's where we are. We're, we're currently um, near 80% funded after four days, which is lovely. I'm, I'm told by people who've done lots of crowdfunders, this is my first one. I am very anxious. It's like I've got a chart on the wall with how much do they love you? Zero to 100. <laughs> and it's um, about 80 at the moment. But I'm told, I'm told that uh, 80 is where, it, it, you know, things grind to a halt and you will slowly get that last 20%. But, you know, we're, we're quite early for that. So I have some hopes. And uh, I've been busy um, harvesting email addresses, all thought bubble, uh, to send people the website. And get, I've got people interested hand to hand. I I suspect we're going to hit some of our lovely stretch goals. And, um, you know, I couldn't be happier. Zupa, a wonderful team to work with. Seeing new Ryan Kelly Saucer Country pages has been delightful. And um, I, I, one of the, one of the uh, I think, one of our selling points is that 10 years ago when we started this, we got some of our guesses about where US politics was going and what was influencing it. Right. Uh, uh, we 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 were talking about Russian interference in US politics way back. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, two guest stars in the latter part of the series. Uh, one is Philip K. Dick and um, one is Vladimir Putin, uh, who whose presence will continue in the finale. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, what what sorts of country is about at heart is UFO mythology is is. Um, the gorgeously colourful and varied world of, of UFOs uh, across history. We do everything from George Adamski's contactees and meeting Orthon from the planet Venus to uh, fairy lore to um, the um, Hopkins Kellyville goblins to the Greys, Whitley Stryber, the Deeros, um, the um, 1947 events, um, Roswell, we, we we cover the whole spectrum, and we do so from a kind of fourteen point of view. It's not a believer book, and it's not a skeptical book. It's a uh, an interested book. We think this stuff is exciting and and as American as jazz, and you export it to the rest of the world. Thank you for the grays, and <laughs> um, at least they they've got away now. They're unfashionable. Uh, we, we've got lizard lizard men now, mm -hmm. but. Um, They've obviously done enough probing and uh, headed home. But um, it, it's, um, yeah, uh, uh, so Ryan's art is terrific for this because he can both do the the 
intricate character acting and also incredibly weird stuff. And uh, we've got our share of incredibly weird visuals. So I've done the talking and talking. Sorry, public, public. Ah, <laughs> uh, never, never apologize for for talking. It's what you're here to do. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, one thing you brought up that I was curious about. You know, you're you were just at a, a big convention this weekend. How do you how do you hand sell a thing that you know? for all intents and purposes, doesn't exist exist yet, right? Like, so you have a table and you want people to go to, to Zoop and support this campaign, you know, I guess it's like a promise of content. Well, yes, I, I was I was selling off my old back catalogue as well and, and <laughs> Three Little Wishes, my um, my rom-com uh, graphic novel, <laughs> we, we got through every single copy of that. It, it, actually, we sold everything on the table. Nice. And... Uh, Except the the last thing, a single issue sat there for an hour, because we you know we we had it on a stand, we put it in the middle of the table, we pointed at it. <laughs> but anyway, um, but no, I had a clipboard with a list, and uh, I would get the clipboard out and say, "If you'll excuse me, we've been having a lovely conversation, but could I have your email address mm-hmm. to sell it to a group of international marketeers who want to spam? No, <laughs> to." Uh, um, Give it to to send you the website for the um, uh, the uh, Zoop campaign, and uh, it's a lovely website. They've done loads of um, loads of work on it. We've got a, a wonderful promotional video on there. We've got Ryan's first page of the new issue. Spoils the heck out at the end of the uh, end of Source Estate, but what the heck? <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, no, I just sold it hand to hand, and I had a big banner of a grey behind me, which helped. Now, uh, one thing I was curious about, uh, you know, obviously Saucer State ended with with the book being canceled. But in terms of the move from Vertigo to IDW, was that something where you had to like, you know, fight's not the right word, but, you know, actively work to sort of move the book to another publisher? Well, this is this is becoming quite uh, weird now, but everybody asked this question. Um, I just asked, can I have all my rights, please? <laughs> and they said yes. Simple is good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think actually there was a, a lovely, lovely rights person there at the time. And um, I, I figure they thought, well, it's a it's a cancelled book. And, you know, we 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 don't have any um, DC Universe connections in this. So they were just kind enough to give it to me. So, yeah, we. I own it now, and um, yeah, I know. I I feel like uh, like I snuck out the back door with a, <laughs> with a Christmas pudding, but um, but no, it's true. It's true. Excellent. And uh, so now you're working with uh, Chris Riles, Syzygy Publishing Imprint. Uh, you know, I, I assume that means that you know you had a good working relationship with Chris back when he yeah. was you know at IDW. Chris has always been uh, a mentor of mine and of so many other people. And uh, he's one of those wonderful figures who are kind of doing odd jobs around the comics industry now, helping out here and there. And um, uh, an eminence grease, really. Mm-hmm. And not that he's particularly grease. He's still still quite bouncy and youthful. I don't know where this is going. Anyway, um, <laughs> he's, he's wonderful. And um, he was our editor at IDW, and then he left as editor-in-chief, and then we got cancelled. I think, you know, he was our champion there. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's always had a great interest in UFOs. 
And yeah, we're we're partnering partnering with Syzygy. Um, uh, basically, they'll um, I gather uh, handle any overprint and uh, you know do some distribution of their own. I I'm not entirely sure about that end of things. I leave that to Chris. But he's our editor emeritus, and uh, we're delighted to have him around. I mean, that is one of the benefits of using Zoop over Kickstarter is that you've got people working on the fulfillment end for you and you don't have to transform your, uh, you know, uh, flat into a, an Amazon warehouse. <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've, I've become an enormous advocate for them because honestly, they couldn't be more transparent and ethical. Uh, they showed us all the math immediately and... Uh, we are delighted by, I've actually been quite surprised as we've gone along, how much work they're doing. I expected to do a lot more. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, wonderful, wonderful service they provide. Now, the uh, the final issue that is included in the Omnibus or available as a standalone, how, I guess, far removed from producing the rest of the story was it? You know, had you had script left over from saucer state or you know was it like sometime last year you were like you know what i'm just going to start writing the end of the story well um i'd always known what the ending was going to be mm -hmm. and uh so the last few pages have just have written themselves but um what i did was i went back and reread the entire run and made notes on what questions needed answering and what plots needed wrapping up and was quite careful to make sure that everything got closure and answers. Um, we're really concerned with the, the example people will have of this genre beforehand is the X-Files, really. Mm -hmm. And the X-Files delighted in leaving things open. And we do not. We're, we're, we're going to answer all the questions and... Um, and all the characters that had big arcs going get closure for their arcs. Um, some some characters sort of poke poked up a bit in um, uh, Saucer State, looking like they might be important, but no, uh, they've not not got room to be important now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but th those aren't the ones any long term readers will be interested in, in getting uh, answers for. So, <laughs> but no, all all, all questions answered. <laughs> So you mentioned earlier that you know you had predicted some of the the trends of the real world politics and you said you had the ending of the story sort of planned out to begin with but how much has some of that real world stuff affected the story i mean even in between saucer country and saucer state you had the rise of Trump, you had Brexit, you had mm. the annexation of Crimea. And now in between Saucer State and this finale, I mean, I don't know if the world has gotten even stranger, but it certainly hasn't gotten any less. More yeah. stuff definitely happened. <laughs> definitely. Um, I, I think Russia has simply remained exactly as threatening as it always was all the way through. I'm very much with... Um, uh, John le Carre on this, who until his deathbed was always insisting that they were the problem. And um, I think that uh, Trump surprised me a bit. Um, I, I was, I set up our Trump figure as 
quite um he might be going to be a problem for Arcadia, but it doesn't look like he really is right now. So we kind it's kind of neat actually that we've hopped around him. Um but uh really it's about so sociological warfare. It's the idea that nation states can successfully use social media influence to push each other. And uh, specifically, the Russians are very, very good at this. And uh, the the one of the central theses of saucer country is it's all in reaction to a decades-long psyop that got played out during uh, Putin's rise up, up the ranks of the KGB and finally into um, power um, by the, the West against the Soviet Union and then Russia. And um, we sort of say that one is payback for the other. And um, I, I, well, I wouldn't say I believe this to be true. I think the evidence indicates that a lot of this is true. Um, not the alien bits, but the our underlying intelligence story, which I'm trying not to spoil here, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, it use it makes use of a lot of UFO mythology. Uh, I the freedom of, in, of information requests have shown that there's there was a ton of infiltration of early UFO groups by um, intelligence officers, and they weren't there to monitor; they were there to encourage. Um, the idea that uh, when people looked up in, in the sky, they wouldn't see a U two but a UFO, and they built and built on that and used it for many many other purposes. And um, yeah, so uh, we we play with that a lot. But there are there is a real core of of something not of this world in the book. Now, Arcadia believes that she was abducted by aliens. Today's American politicians believe things like there's a secret cabal of liberal Hollywood baby eaters, <laughs> and JFK Jr. is going to rise from the most sincere pumpkin patch and smite them all. Um, <laughs> Were you prepared for the central conceit of your book to be rendered quaint by a decade of politics? <laughs> well, um, I, I, I initially saw that the whole business of the uncanny, of the unknown, was swinging wildly to the right. And, and that's been quite disturbing to those of us who followed that stuff all our lives, that um, it's being weaponized. Um, it, the idea that... Um, there was all there was always a an anti-government core in stateside ufology. That is to say, um if there is any truth to Roswell, uh it is in the anger that community felt to uh being bossed around by um uh uh, I, I'm. What would be the word? Um, U.S. Army, U.S. Army military police, okay. um, who were uh, trying to round up the bits of whatever that was. Um, I, I think that uh, resentment, and this is seized land. This is um land that the um, uh, what became the USAF had seized during World War Two and never given back. And um, the local farmers, in 1947, that's a very hot issue. Um, and um, the, you read the press of the time, which I have, 
and it's all about um you know we we just had the soldiers through here um, shaking people down and threatening people um in 1947 in America and uh, there's a great deal of resentment there and that's instead of building into some kind of political movement that built into a a piece of UFO mythology and um, I think that's fascinating I, I I kind of went thinking thinking about this you know I started going on this sort of tear and thinking about how you know how and when uh alien encounter stuff sort of re-enters the popular consciousness you know the roswell incident happened during the post-world war ii boom the x-files men in black independence day they all come out during the mid-90s in a time of, of fairly economic prosperity um saucer country letter charles Sewell's letter 44 they're you know they're both about u.s politicians dealing with aliens and they come during obama's second term uh, another up period uh, AKA the last good time I have here, but, uh, you know, it, that it also occurred to me that close encounters of the third kind came out in 77 during the Jimmy Carter recession. So that kind of, that, that theory took a dive right there. <laughs> well, I, I, I think there's, um, there are, there are big bumps here. Um, the, uh, Roswell goes away for decades and comes back with, uh, I think it's Charles Berlitz wrote a book which comes out right around Close Encounters. And um, Close Encounters really reignites everything. Um, they're, they're, uh, and again, UFO mythology would say that that is no coincidence, that um, there are lots and lots of cultural factors playing into Close Encounters. For instance, the history of the Greys, uh, Barney and Betty Hill. Exactly. One, yeah. Um, a, a friend of mine says that um, at a particular stage of uh, a drunken evening, I always get to Barney and Betty Hill. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's right at the height of Kennedy, if you're talking yeah. about upswings. Yeah. Uh, but they they have a unique experience which comes out of whole cloth. Every now and then, I'm tempted to think that if ever aliens have trodden on Earth, it, they met them. Um, I think they, that might be the only real UFO encounter in history uh, because they are myth-making off their own bat, uh, creating something completely new. And they meet kind of proto-greys. They're a little bit blue and they wear little uniforms and peak caps and they're lost. <laughs> and um, they show them a star chart uh, that's been uncannily matched to some real local stars. And they give Betty some kind of um, uh, pregnancy scan that doesn't seem to have been invented at the time, but was later. There's all sorts of uh, worrying detail here. But um, they, um, they're taken by the artist Carlo Rimbaldi as the model for the aliens at the end of Close Encounters. And um, those aliens are very like the greys that later abduct Whitley Stryver, um, whose aims and um, motives, and they're incredibly different to the Barney and Betty Hill aliens, but still that's a sort of mythological DNA linking all three of them. 
the Hills are just a fascinating case because, I mean, so much, I mean, an interracial couple in 1961, the last thing they want to do is draw that much more attention to themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and but... skeptics say that they watched a particular Outer Limits episode the night before. There's no proof they saw it. Nobody was watching the Outer Limits at that point. <laughs> and um, also, I'm a huge Outer Limits fan. And the resemblance between the um, Outer Limit, the, the creature in the Outer Limits episode, the Bolero Shield, and their aliens is minuscule. And also... That, that creature has nothing to do with the abduction narrative. Um, he he is actually the victim of an abduction in that a scientist who's built a strange device, played by Martin Landau, um, zaps him out of thin air and transports him to our dimension. Literally, it could not have le less to do with the scenario that Barney and Betty Hill either conjure up or experience. I think we could both go on this for a while so yes we could we could we could <laughs> <laughs> yeah no 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 I, I you know it's 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 clear between uh this and and Doctor Who you can't help but be an alien guy uh <laughs> in fact segue uh one of the stretch goals is you writing a story in which characters from saucer country meet characters from your work on Doctor Who correct yeah um, I would say I'm. I really, really don't want to infringe the Doctor Who license. This is going to be fan fiction, and nobody's going to have to pay for it. It gets released into the wild if we hit this hit this stretch goal. Um, and um, yeah, that's that's one of our, our stretches. Um, another one is the um, documents for when um, we attempted to uh, pitch this as a TV show, which got very close. Um, and uh, we put together quite a lot of, uh, you know, uh, season arcs and things like that. And I think I think people who like the, the series might like to see them. So that's another of our goals. And um, another another goal is that uh, I'll write a, a new piece of uh, saucer country fiction to bridge. Not actually to bridge a gap. Maybe we'll uh, just um, do something else from season one, one as it were, from... Uh, back in the day with another bit of ufo lore so so D dan will get his fanboy moment later but I, I gotta go for this right now um who would make the the more fun companion for the doctor Mulder or scully or is it just all three lone gunmen aha uh -huh. um i think the doctor would get very fed up with a lone gunman very quickly <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I i think um uh Mulder is a bit too doctorish um, and the Doctor doesn't like the Doctor very much, and um, <laughs> so it's got to be Scully. And actually, there are there are Doctors who oh, can you imagine Peter Davison and Scully? Wow, that would be fab. And um, I, I, I actually, I mean, Gillian Anderson is so good that uh, yeah, I, I, I'd like her to be the Doctor. Honestly, sign me up. I would watch <laughs> that show. Yeah. <laughs> Oh boy. 
So the uh, fun and scare quotes part of running a crowdfunding campaign is that you have to be a little more active on social media during a period in which everyone on Twitter is that guy wearing the end is near sandwich board on the street corner. Yeah. Uh, how's that going for you? <laughs> well, it's made it a bit choppy. It's made it a more exciting experience. Yes, um, it's um, uh so far, our timing seems to be holding out on that. We've got Twitter's got to hold on for another twenty-three days. And, <laughs> um, but you know, um, I I think there are. I would if if it does go under, I will swiftly decamp to another um, social media platform and build build the campaign there. But um, we we haven't got far to go, and um, I I think we'll be in stretch goal land very soon. Um, but yeah, I got I got swarmed by those bot guys who um you know, you say something bad about Elon Musk and oof, here they come. Yeah. And so I've been uh I was blocking those like crazy for a while, and that was just before the campaign was due to start. So uh, but I think I blocked enough of them and they finally went away. Um I did I did a tweet deliberately summoning them a couple of days before, <laughs> thinking I might as well just get them all in one place and then mega block them. So I did. But um, and that seemed to work. But uh ooh. <laughs> I have no idea what their motivation was. I mean, they 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 came to like Elon Musk, but they're driving people away from his social media. Because then it's all for them. And that they can be closer to uh, this very rich man who will never love them back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and has logic ever really affected an internet troll? Well, no. I mean, I, it'd be nice to capture one, isolate them, see what <laughs> makes them see what makes them tick. Well, I, I, I suspect in, in many cases, rubles are what make them tick. But uh, <laughs> to, to bring it back round to yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, nasty little time. Mm -mm. So uh, an interesting thing, another interesting thing about the campaign is during the first 24 hours, uh, both American and UK backers would receive local shipping rates, uh, their local shipping rates. And then after that, whichever side of the pond had more backers would get the uh, local rate. Uh, have you been clued in as, as to who won the shipping wars? <laughs> yeah, it was the US. Okay. Um, but everybody who uh, got um, in in the first twenty four hours will get their local rate, and that's wonderful. That drove the early campaign so well. It was a wonderful idea on the part of Zoop. I, I gather that we're the first campaign they've tried that with, and uh, but worked worked a treat. Um, I don't think the shipping is going to be prohibitive, no matter where you are. Honestly, <laughs> that's good. But, uh, you know, beyond Saucer Country, you do have plenty of other stuff going on. Uh, you just wrapped an adaptation of George R. R. Martin's Wild Cards for uh, Marvel. Uh, how did that opportunity come about? Oh, uh, well, I've been a, a member of the Wild Cards Collective uh, for many years, um, where George R. R. Martin and Melinda Snodgrass run this real-time superhero universe that's been going since the uh, early 1980s in prose. Mm -hmm. And um, I've contributed several stories. And I was in that Venn diagram of uh, members of the collective who are also comics writers. And so, you know, I pitched a take. And uh, it's a very pure adaptation of the first first volume of Wildcards. So new readers really do start there. Mm -hmm. And I think the quality of the material, the uh, 
it's still a very different take on a superhero universe. Um, it's It was the first kind of gritty, what if superheroes are real universe. It's be- It appeared before Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And um, you can see the, I, I think, I, in, in a, if I say Watchmen was influenced by it, that sounds like I'm accusing uh, the wonderful Alan Moore of, of, of passing off or theft or whatever. That's not it. I think all <laughs> art is in conversation with other art. And we've just got an, an emerging genre here, which Watchmen built on. And I think Wild Cards really was the start of that genre. So uh, the, the comic series is about re-emphasizing how different it is. And, uh, you know, in, it, it adapts the first two stories with different artists. And uh, wonderful, Steve Hawthorne and then Enid Balam. And they're both great and they're both really different. Is there a character i assume other than your own uh or a writer amongst the collective who you have a real fondness for i mean for me uh it's zelazny i'm a yeah. huge roger zelazny fan so seeing croyd in that adaptation yeah. hit me real in the in a good spot oh croyd is is my favorite i i, I my own character i gave her a love story with croyd because i like croyd so much and i wanted to write him and um uh, my own character um, picks up on uh, other people's superpowers like their Wi-Fi. And so she will just suddenly be, she'll be walking down the street and suddenly burst into flames. And that's not a good thing to be when you're an aspiring actor. And um, it's uh, it, she's just desperately trying not to have superpowers and to be an actor and superpowers keep on impinging on her world. And um, I... Um, you know, I love I love Zulazny. Um uh David Anthony Durham is another another member of the collective. Um we've got um oh so many voices that uh you know pop up every now and then. Uh Claremont's in the collective. Um uh, we've we've sort of George has always really kind of recruited. Um he will look around to see who's hot right now. And uh, kind of include them to so new voices and new styles keep on being added across the across the the years. It's been it's been a wonderfully um wonderfully uh enthusing thing to be a part of, and and wonderfully it's a socialist enterprise. Um, you get uh, shares in the collective, um, on the basis of how many characters you create and how many times those characters are used by other people. So at the end of the year. All the shares are tallied up, and the money the whole collective makes is distributed to those people who've earned the most. Well, you you get it per share. So you know the more you contribute, the more you get, and the more other people use your use your character, the more you get. So it's a, a you know on good years that supports a whole bunch of uh, aging creators, especially. So, you know, with the, I couldn't be, be proud to be a part of that. That is uh, excellent. And uh, we should also note that you've got a graphic novel coming out next year with TKO, uh, The Witches of World War II, drawn by Valeria Burzo, which tells a story of the occult during the war. And, oh, Matt, I gave you a synopsis to read. You did indeed. 
In the darkest hours of World War II, Doreen Valiente, a junior intelligence officer, 20 years old and already a war widow, is approached by a British general who tells her he knows she's a witch. And that's how she can best serve her country. Valiente, an expert on British folklore and the occult, is to use her connections in this peculiar community to recruit a group of British magicians and use their skills to gain some advantage over the Nazi high command, who believe fervently in all this occult rubbish. Together with Aleister Crowley, the self-proclaimed most evil man in the world, Valiente recruits hard-nosed white witch Dion Fortune, the grizzled and gray-bearded founder of a Wicca, Gerald Gardner, and exorcist and conman in a turban, Rollo Ahmed. Together, this coven of witches will travel deep into the heart of Nazi-occupied Europe and gamble their lives, their beliefs, and their powers on a mission to, to help capture Rudolf Hess, fervent occultist and second in the command to Adolf Hitler himself. Yep. <laughs> um, a, a, a lot of this is real a lot of this is true i made up the mission into nazi germany uh, that's a historical but we mm -hmm. are very careful as to where we leave what's true um and uh, there are historical essays in the back by me and by um uh, we we had the wonderful access of people who are in the societies based around these real people and um who some of whom actually knew them uh, who are contributing to uh, to the detail. And uh, these are some amazing people whose real stories are terrific. And um, it's... Uh, um, Doreen Valiente is a, a, a tremendous person who may or may not, we're not sure, she had a very blank World War II in the way that people who did interesting things during World War II seemed to get historical blankness. Um, I think Crowley, who's easily the most famous member of the group, probably was some kind of argent provocateur. He got money from the British government, definitely, for doing something during the war, uh, or just before it. Um, and the others are... Uh, one gets the impression of, uh, 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 of um... Gerald Gardner, that he's a desperately lovely man who uh, doesn't exactly invent, but discovers Wicca and um, and popularizes it. Uh, and and there are a whole bunch of interesting figures. I I, I call this basically historical fiction. Uh, we we never quite settle settle the question of whether magic is real, but for these people, it's really important. And they do great good. And uh, there's a, a big anti-fascist payoff in this book. Uh, the, Valeria is terrific at drawing um, the 1940s fashions and uh, an atmosphere. It all feels a bit like a, a, a RKO movie. Um, it's a, it gets a little bit rollicking, but it's quite it's quite thoughtful. So I, I couldn't be more pleased with it. I can't wait for people to see it. It's a proper graphic novel. It's what had done in, in a single volume. Now, had you come to TKO with, with Valeria or did they kind of help you assemble a, a, a squad there? Oh yeah, they, they assembled a squad. Um, I, I wasn't aware of her. They they found her and now she's working in Mignolaverse. So, so she's doing really well for herself. So I mean, you've got saucer country with aliens. Now you've got 
the more traditional occult here. Uh, is there another brand of the sort of near reality that you want to hit next? Cryptids, maybe? We we, we got a, <laughs> a, a a Yeti story coming anytime soon? Funny you should say that. <laughs> and that that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> we, we understand these rules, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> And but squee. <laughs> there, there, there is there is also another thing that's not that that um, I've um, got underway at the moment that's being drawn and it has not been announced. So it, it, it's rather lovely for me in the creator own comics right now. I'm doing a lot. It's good. That's great. Now you know World War Two, of course, is is one of those things that storytellers will be able to mine uh forever you know do you have a favorite sort of obscure story or factoid about england's role in the war in general it doesn't have to pertain to this book you know oh that's really interesting i i'm i'm a great fan of a particular historical book called the greatest enemy which is um about how incredibly well prepared britain was for the battle of britain and um how uh Air Chief uh, Marshal Dowding had basically put the systems in place to win that before the war. Um, and and very, very deliberately, um, Churchill uh, goaded and cajoled and uh, fainted the Nazis into trying an aerial attack because he needed a battle that we could win. And that was the one. And um, it's uh, incredible how the um, the the um, if you like the uh, the the legendary perspectives have shifted over the two sides. Um, the British were the uh, organized, ruthless machinery of war that just did what it had to do and did it incredibly efficiently in terms of the RAF, mm. and the Germans were the romantic knights of the air that were amateurs who were doing it through sheer um, amateur spirit and uh, getting shot down as a result. And um, there, there are so many stories of basically the, um, the, the Luftwaffe setup initially is that one great ace will come over with a few uh, wingmen who are there just to make him look good. And um, it's it's ridiculous. Um, um, fascist lack of organization, as always. Um, they are actually they have competing. They they believe in competition, so everybody's at each other's throats mm -hmm. all throughout the Luftwaffe. They can't organize anything. Um, we've got radar. They know it. They've got radar too. They can't use it. <laughs> and um, ours is, is an incredibly efficient system. Theirs is all over the place. And um, I just love the fact that the British can't actually um, accept and claim that we were ready, we were organised, and we, we actually got that sorted out. You know, just, just for once, we weren't making it up as we went along. <laughs> and... Um, it's uh, it, it, I, that that book is a revelation. I mean, it it doesn't um, you know diminish the sheer heroism, um, the, the the way that you know a hurricane is made of wood, 
And um, the number of times that a pilot can't do anything early on against uh, one of the Messerschmitts except ram that thing into the other craft. And um, when Spitfire fires came along, uh, there's a, a pilot who who climbs down out of his first Spitfire, out of his first sortie in one, and just says to his ground crew, I'm going to live. And um, it's uh, the number of times that uh, people get promoted two levels because the two officers above them have been killed that day. <laughs> um is extraordinary but it's a it's an evolutionary process in the RAF that is to say the good pilots rise up really quickly and so everybody get gets good and we also had wonderfully two whole squadrons of the Polish air force who'd simply flown out of Poland and landed in Britain and were given british squadron names and um the poles were an incredibly good air force who we just basically take on, and all of the best aces in Britain are Polish. And um, it, it's regarded as one of the great battles of uh, Polish history. And I think that's... The British have also thrown that out the window. They've also diminished that, which is awful. Uh, because, you know, I, I think it, it's the top five kills are all by Polish airmen. Mm-hmm. And um, and sorry, I'm going on and on. I'm going on and no, on about World War no, Two. No, awesome. I really got to the age where I go on and on about World War Two. I thought I had another ten years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just you just wrote a whole book about World War Two, so <laughs> I guess, I guess, <laughs> not to make fun, but you've arrived. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't mean I've got an inch to the right as I've gotten older. If anything, I've gone to the left. <laughs> Oh, me too. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, now that we've been professional sounding uh, podcasters for the last 45 minutes or so, I'd like to switch gears just just for the last little bit. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I could wear a bumper sticker as a human being, it would say that my other podcast is a Pete Wisdom podcast. And so oh. I just wanted to relay that one reason that we were excited to uh, have you on is we were big fans of Captain Britain and MI-13, which I realize is ancient history at this point, but, you know, nevertheless, uh, an important work in the larger canon of my uh, appreciation of comics. So at the risk of sounding like Chris Farley interviewing Paul McCartney, uh, thank you. That was awesome. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. I I miss writing Pete. He was was so by Mary Sue. I I really um, adored writing Pete Wisdom. And... um, Captain Britain and MI13 is a book that was very close to my heart. I do think that it was a shame that we got cancelled. We were we were given good notice of it, so we mm. were able to craft a proper ending. But still, we we were we sold out of an issue in the in the third arc, really late in the run. Mm-hmm. It's just comic shops by then aren't really willing to up their orders. Yeah, you know it's. Uh, it was really frustrating. We were we were there in a very choppy time, and um, but you know we we got to play out most of the stories we had planned, and we had I had some vague thoughts that they might um, encounter the agents of Atlas. Um, we I wanted to do the Fury, uh, but 
that was about as far as any any more thoughts went. Um, mm. I'm delighted with what we got to do. Um, I'm um, immensely pleased that I got to tell you know American artists how to um, American colorists how to color football uh, cricket pitches, and um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm proud of it that I got to do Fazia Hussein. Um, and um, yeah, it, it delightful time, delightful. You know, I, and the the thing about it, especially the ending, is how full circle things come for Pete. Because here's this man who, when we meet him, is is desperately trying to leave the spy game. And by the time MI13 ends, he's commanding all of British intelligence against the vampire nation and doing it his way. Mm-hmm. You know, and ta- and talking about the uh, you know the appropriate way to uh, to to cheat when lives are at stake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I think that um, I've just realised that that whole Battle of Britain spiel I put into Pete's mouth at the end <laughs> of the vampire. Up. But um, I wanted to make him a professional and wanted to make him good at his job and um, take advantage of the superhero desk to do proper intelligence work with superheroes. And um, I do like the the ruthlessness of him sitting in a field with a picnic with um, a, a girl he's on a date with mm-hmm. and saying, well, we've got a, a, you know, a vampire armada approaching from the moon. And um, excuse me a moment. I'll just have to take this. Uh, <laughs> yes. All of the vampires who are left on the ships are um, deliberately in, in on this. And they're trying, coming here to try and kill us, kill them all. And, um, We also got to have a huge um, uh, number of uh, guest stars of obscure British heroes at that (laughs) point. (laughs) And and that was that was another thing I was curious, you know, how big are the Marvel UK characters in the UK? Like, you know, do kids wear Death's Head T-shirts the way, you know, kids here might wear like Miles Morales or something like that? <laughs> Although I did, I did encounter a giant cardboard death's head at uh, Thought Bubble, but uh, that's a very specialised audience. Sure. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, nobody. I, I think people would struggle to recognise Captain Britain, to be honest. And you got to use a bunch of the characters, especially in that last arc. I mean, you've been using Blade for quite some time, but you got to bring in aspects of the Wolfman colon Tomb of Dracula, which mixing that in with Pete Wisdom was for me, that one got me (laughs) because I'm a big fan of that Wolfman colon Tomb of Dracula stuff. Oh, me too. That's one of my favorite runs. Uh, I I think that it it was entirely because Blade is British, that he spent all his, he was born in Britain and spent all his formative years in London. I, you know, I think they should try for the accent for Blade sometime. I think, you know, they, 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 Hello, I'm I'm here to kill some vampires. And uh, yep. again, I would Idris Elba's right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Idris Elba, that would be exactly right. That'd be great. Um, but um, no, I mean, uh, it, it 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 basically came out of me casting around for any character characters that were big enough with a link to Britain, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, when the when the cavalry arrives on that one page, one of them is is Tangerine, who is, according to her little caption box, back from fighting the Mandarin. What is the longest you've seen someone take to get the joke there? Oh, oh, it's <laughs> I, I, I do these things. <laughs> I, I I sometimes I sometimes set, set up particular situations just to be able to pull a stupid gag. <laughs> and, um... <laughs> 
<laughs> tangerine. Lord. Like, where, where, did, where did Tangerine appear? Um, it's in future yet to come. Yeah, oh. it was an Alan Davis story. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, lovely. But uh, so, you know, another thing that kind of so Letter Kirk draws wisdom, a character who spent the first 15 years of his publication history wearing cheap off the rack suits that get easily damaged in a robin's egg blue turtleneck in in the picnic scene. Mm-hmm. Um, why would he draw something so controversial yet so brave? <laughs> <laughs> I, my thing about Pete Wisdom was I, I was really fed up with I wanted to take him away from being uh, John Constantine by other means. Mm-hmm. And um, I had I was so bored with these uh, men in trench coats who look shabby. There's so many of them in the 1990s. And um, I just thought, let's make Peter Dandy. Let's make give him some good suits, um, because it's something he could just decide to do. And um, so we had him uh, be suited and uh, fashionable throughout the, the MI13 run. I, I mean, if you're going to be the head of an agency, you can you can afford uh, some bespoke uh, some bespoke threads. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one of the other things I wanted to do was we we, we start we start um, with uh, him and uh, Pete in a pub because there's this thing about Captain Britain being an alcoholic. Of course, he's not. Um, he gets drunk twice during Excal- the Excalibur run. And the second time, his mates tell him that he's drinking too much, and he immediately stops in the way that alcoholics do not. Um, I it, it always offended me as a British person the idea that Captain Britain was a drunk. Um, not that there's anything, you know, alcoholism is a disease and all that. I get that, but um, I think it's a really easy take on how Americans view British people and our cliche. And uh, I no. Uh, and, and, uh, that was never Claremont's intention, and uh, so I, I just wanted to see to show him having a drink and um, you know having one, and uh, it not being a thing. So yes. Now, do you do you happen do you keep tabs on 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 FISA just to see if she's still around being used? It happens every now and then, and I I do love seeing her pop up al ewing uh was delightful with her the, the other day and mm-hmm. um you know it's it, i one I, I i really love seeing the characters appear again it, it, it gives one a huge frisson and the whole thing about contributing to the marvel universe is that um or any other shared fictional universe is that you're just delighted when something sticks and is used again and uh, I like the fact that in his subsequent appearances, Captain Britain is his powers are still de- dependent on confidence. That was something that, <laughs> that I added. That uh, and um, yeah, it's just lovely to see her, her especially pop up. I, I I really like seeing that. Just as we're we're wrapping things up, I do want to curious. I'm a uh, tend to avoid spoilers, so I had completely no idea that last moment of the power of the Doctor. As, as someone else who you know who's written who who's written a, some of my favorite who uh when, when that moment happened which i'm avoiding spoilers mm. in, for those who haven't seen the most recent doctor who special yet uh but if you have you know what i'm talking about <laughs> i literally watched it i turned to my partner and was like oh shit 
<laughs> did, did you was that did I miss the obvious or was that an oh shit moment for you too? Um I, the, the fandom knew something was up. Um and um, I think for the general public though, that would have been a pure surprise. And Russell's very, very good at uh, creating such surprises. And um I think it's really interesting that both of them are in the mix, that uh, we've seen the clips, um, and we've seen the trailer for the next time around. Um, I I cannot wait. I, I think Russell's mastery of publicity is, is just terrific. Getting people talking about this stuff is one of the things he's incredibly good at. And I'm delighted by it. Uh, penultimate question, what are you reading right now? Oh, um, right now I am reading um, a collection of, um, <laughs> appropriately enough, uh, enough um, UFO comics. That is, um, comics based on the TV show UFO. Uh, that uh, Jerry Anderson show um, that, that uh, had weekly, you know, British weekly anthology comics had a strip in those. and mm -hmm. Hasn't been collected until now, and I'm fascinated by them. That's great. Well, uh, Paul, this has been a fantastic hour. Final question before we release you back into the world. Uh, how can people follow you online and back the Saucer Country campaign? Well, um, my um, uh, blog is paulcornell.com, and that's where you'll find um, all my doings. Uh, but you can find, uh, if you look up, if you search for Saucer Country on Zoop, Z-O-O-P, that's where you will find... Um, the, uh, the the campaign and uh, thank you very much if you do so do check us out there's some lovely stuff there well thank you so so much for coming on the show i've enjoyed it thoroughly thank you so much that's it for this week's show as a reminder wmq a is part of comics xf where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast the battle of the atom and bat chat with matt and will co-hosted by matt lazowitz and our bud will nevin you can listen to wmq a on apple podcasts stitcher SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, any $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Kat Purcell, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember... Pete Wisdom was actually the first character to ever say, To me, my X Men. W -N -Q -A. W -N -Q -A.